Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, friends. Welcome back. Good to see everyone. I hope everyone had as great of a discussion as I had with my group this morning. Uh, This is a challenging text. I hope you had um, a good time discussing it together. I have just a couple of announcements for you this morning. Um, I do want to remind you once again that our retreat is coming up on May 1st at Summers Mill. We're currently full, but we are still accepting people on the wait list. So if you would like to sign up, you can go to the hub or you can go to the website and put your name on the wait list. That event is happening May 1st at Summers Mill. Second announcement is today, right after class, um, we are going to be um, heading next door, any of you who are willing and able to stay, and we're going to be wrapping gifts for our Embrace Grace baby shower. That is happening Sunday at 3 o'clock here at the Creekside Building, and, um, and you're invited to come. If any of you would like to come and just encourage um, the three women who participated in our group this year, um, it would be a, su- a huge blessing to them and to all of us as, as leaders. It's really been an exciting an exciting time in Embrace Grace, and I want you to continue to pray um, for the three young women. I really feel it, all of them, their hearts are so tender to the Lord. So if you would keep, keep them in your prayers. So right after, I'll give us some instructions about how we're going to wrap gifts. All right, let's, um, let's all stand up. We get to say our, our memory verse one more week from last week. I said it was only going to be once, but we get to do it again. Um, this is an important, important verse in the Gospel of Mark. So let's read this together and we'll pray and get started. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. All right, let's stay standing and we'll pray together. God, we do love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And we desire deeply to love our neighbor as ourself. We desire to love one another as you have loved us. And God, we need your help. We need, we need you to come and just take over. Take over our, our deceitful hearts. Give us a new heart. Just pour your spirit into us. Give us just adoration and affection for you that is so true and so real. We just ask you for it today. God, we are, we're about to talk about a very difficult passage of Scripture, and, and it's, it's quite honestly very daunting uh, for me to teach. And I'm, I'm asking for wisdom. I'm asking um, for all of us. I trust that you have been teaching us individually and together as we have discussed, and that you still have much, much more to teach me. And so, God, um, would you just take these words and um, anything that is from you and that you want us to hear, would you help us to put it uh, deeply within our hearts? But anything that is just way off, would you just help us to forget it very, very quickly as we leave today? God, um, we just praise your name. We are so thankful for your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Well, how many of you have seen this show, Call the Midwife? I just, 
absolutely love this show. It's based on the real-life mem memoirs of the girl in the middle of this picture depicted here, uh, Jennifer Worth. She's written a book, and it's really fantastic. And it's about a group of midwives, nurses and nuns living together in London's East End at this place called Nanata's House. And these women are sharing life together, and they're sharing faith together with their community. Now, they're trained to do something very important. They're trained to interpret birth pains, but that is not their ultimate goal. Their ultimate goal is to help to usher in new life into the world. Well, in our text today, in chapter 13 of Mark, verse 8, Jesus refers to the beginning of birth pains. And just like these midwives, I think Jesus is helping his disciples to make sense of these birth pains long before they ever happen, even as he is ushering in something new. Well, last week, Anna did a great job of walking us through the first three days in Jesus' last week on earth in Mark 11 and 12. And chapter 13 takes place on Tuesday of that week, and it's a continuation of what Jesus had already begun on Monday and Tuesday. Remember, he has been systematically deconstructing temple Judaism on his way to the cross. Remember last week we talked about him cursing and destroying a fig tree, which was a symbol of Judaism, and then he went into the temple and he drove out all of the money changers, stating very emphatically, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Then he began to challenge the religious leaders and to, and to defend his authority right there in the temple. And so where, where we pick up today, chapter 13, verse 1, he is coming right out of that temple that temple is very important to the context of chapter 13. So it starts here. Here at the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus implies here that the old is about to be done away with. The stones of the temple are going to come down, but he is doing something new as their servant king. In chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus had said these words, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. I think that's what chapter 13 is all about. I'm going to attempt to tell you what I think that greater thing is today. But I, I want you to know, I want to acknowledge that this is a very hard text of Scripture. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to do my very best with the material. But there are lots of opinions about what these verses really mean. And what I'm about to walk you through makes a lot of sense to me, but I hold it very loosely I reserve the right for God to continue to deepen my understanding and even to change my mind. So if any of you want to talk about it afterwards, I want to invite you to do so. 
So our outline for today, what I'm going to walk us through, will be as follows. I'm going to give you a brief history of the temple that I think will help us understand it a little better. Then I'm going to talk about signs of its imminent destruction, the hopeful climax, and then a message for us. So let's start with a brief history of the temple. As I see it, there are five temples or five dwelling places of God mentioned in the big story of God in the whole of the Bible. The first dwelling place of God is found in the creation narrative of Genesis, where God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then on the seventh day, when he rested, he came into his creation. He came into his temple to dwell. The Garden of Eden was to be his dwelling place with mankind, but sin changed all of that. Well, we find a description of the second dwelling place of God in Exodus. The tabernacle was a special tent built with specific instructions from God by Moses for God's people, Israel. And in Exodus 40, verse 34, we have this amazing description of God's glory filling the tabernacle. Well, time moves on. The tabernacle is around for quite some time with the people of Israel. But as we studied in 2 Samuel last semester, we left King David wanting a permanent place for God's presence to reside in in Jerusalem. He wanted to, to change the tabernacle to a permanent dwelling place, a temple. And so he started gathering materials for this temple, but it's his son, King Solomon, who will actually complete it. And we're going to study this next fall in 1 Kings. So this was called the first temple or Solomon's temple. It was completed in 1000 BC. But tragically, this temple was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in 586 when he came in and he conquered Jerusalem and he took God's people into captivity in Babylon. Well, sometime later, about 50 years later, Cyrus allowed some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem and they got to start rebuilding this temple. The second time that it was built, it was called the second temple, but it was very small. I I depicted it twice in this little picture. The first time it was small and it was very, it was It was very drab compared to Solomon's temple, and the the Israelites did not like it. They were really disappointed with the smaller temple. But it remained relatively unchanged for close to 500 years. But during the, the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in 37 BC, King Herod the Great, he took that little temple and he just rebuilt and enlarged it with the consent of the people. And that's why I made it so big there. It's bigger than even Solomon's temple was. This is the temple here in the Gospel of Mark. Many people thought that this rebuilt temple was the most beautiful building in all of the world. It was considered a wonder of the world at that time. It was double the size of Solomon's temple. It was one-sixth the size of the entire city of Jerusalem, approximately 1.5 million square feet. It was made of huge 
stones. And it was fantastically ornate. It had gold and bronze doors, beautiful tapestries, and these golden grape clusters all around, just to name a few. So you can imagine that the disciples are really confused here when Jesus says that this temple is going to be destroyed. Not one of those huge, ginormous stones are going to be left. And so they just wonder, what in the world does he mean? So Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. This is just an artist's description of the hillside. Um, but he goes to this hillside with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And this is the view that they have from the Mount of Olives to that magnificent temple. And they're looking at it. And these four guys, these close, close disciples of Jesus, ask him, tell us, when will these things be accomplished? And what will be the sign when all of these things are to be accomplished? So they're asking, when, Jesus, when will this temple, this beautiful temple, be destroyed? Well, Jesus says that there indeed will be some signs of its destruction. But I want you to remember right here that this conversation is all taking place between Jesus and these four guys on the side of that mountain. He's telling them the signs of the destruction of this temple. And he tells them that they're going to be like birth pains, and they're going to give way to something new. And so I'm going to take the rest of this this text, and I'm going to divide it into beginning, middle, and end birth pains. I think that's what Jesus is trying to talk to them about. So he starts with external signs. And he says that these are the beginning of birth pains. He starts in verse 6. He says, Many will come in my name, saying that I am he, and they will lead many astray. Be on guard. Don't follow them. And then in verses 7 and 8, he says there will be rumors of war. There will be nation fighting against nation, kingdom fighting against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes And there's going to be natural disasters. But these are just the beginning. They're the external pains. But the middle part that he details in verses 9 to 13, this is where things start to get personal. This is where the birth pains really start to hurt. There's going to be persecution and there's going to be discord. Jesus tells them to be on guard and not to be anxious. I find that kind of funny because can you imagine being told that you're going to be delivered to councils, governors, kings, you're going to stand on trial, you're going to be beaten in synagogues, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake, even your families are going to turn against you, but don't be anxious. (laughs) Uh, I think it's kind of funny. Jesus' disciples, they really did. They did face this kind of persecution right up to the time that this gospel of Mark was being written. Just like Jesus, who would face trial and beatings and being hated and having his family turn against him, they faced trials and beatings and the loss of family 
and even death. Three of these four apostles will be martyred. And all of this is because of their allegiance to Jesus. But I think Jesus, just like a good midwife, he comforted and he reassured them. He reminded them that it's going to be okay. First, he had already told them that he was going to go ahead of them. Three times he said that he was on the way to the cross and that he would rise again. He was going first. But he reminded them, even then, that the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations and that they will be given what to say by the Holy Spirit and that the ones who endure to the end will be saved. So I think he's comforting them. He's reassuring them. He's coaching them for what will be. But when we get to verses 14 to 23, this is the final straw. This would be like the breaking of the water, so to speak, if birth pains. There's no turning back. When this happens, the baby's coming. Something new is about to happen. So you'll notice that change of mood in verse 14 when he says, when this happens, it's time to run to the hills. It's time to get out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, because something really terrible is going to happen. And he mentions this appalling object or person whose presence will signify imminent destruction. And he calls it the abomination of desolation. And we just look at that and we just say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, I think that, that these three guys knew what he was talking about. This is um, something that was prophesied in Daniel. These very words were prophesied. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. You can write that down and look at it later. Daniel mentioned an abomination of desolation, setting itself up in the temple. And many people believe that this event had already happened, that it happened between that time, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In A.D. Um, 168, I'm sorry, in B.C. One, <laughs> 168, um, there was this king, this Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he came in and he tried to, to desecrate and take over the temple of God. And he actually sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was abominable to the people. This enraged the Jews and they led a revolt, a revolt that was led by the Maccabee family. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Maccabean Revolt. And they overthrew Antiochus, and they took control of the temple. This was one of the greatest moments in Jewish history. And so any good Jew would know about it, would, rem would remember it. And so Jesus doesn't describe here what this abomination of desolation will be, but he seems to be referring back to that. Remember, you knew when something came and set itself up in the temple that was so absolutely abhorrent that, that it was bad. When this happens this time, I don't want you to fight. I don't want you to take up arms. I want you to run. I want you to get out of town. I want you to get out of Jerusalem. I want you to run to the hills. Jesus is saying that this is going to happen in the future and that it's going to incur a lot of suffering. There's going to be great tribulation. But when they see the abomination... They need to get out of Jerusalem. And that leads us to what I believe is the climax. 
And it's a hopeful climax in verses 24 to 31. The reason I think this is the climax and that these verses are all talking about it, um, one of the clues is verse 30. If you look in your, your Bibles, verse 30 gives us a clue. Jesus said to these four, these four guys, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So I think that he was talking about something that was going to happen in the lifetime of these four guys. I think he's still talking about the destruction of the temple, which hasn't happened even when Mark's gospel is being written and read. It's about to happen. And so I think that it would help us just a little bit to look back on what actually happened to the temple because we don't talk about it very much. Um, and I think it, it helps us to make sense of what Jesus was saying. The temple actually was destroyed somewhere between 35 and 40 years after Jesus spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. So it was a long time after he, after he said it. In the year AD 69, there were four different Roman emperors who were trying to take charge of Jerusalem. It was a year of violence and bloodshed, massive civil war. The first one was Nero, and we already know a little bit about Nero. He was, he was an awful guy, but he was nothing compared to the next three that were fighting to take control. So first you had Nero, then Otho, then Vitulius, and finally Vespasian. And each one was fighting for power with murder, civil war, and violence abounding. That year was just awful. But when Vespasian took charge in, at the, right at the beginning of AD 70, his adopted son, Titus, thought that now was the time to really come in and inflict massive damage and pain on the Jews and on the Christians. And so he mounted a siege. He came in in a five-month siege. He and his army desecrated the temple, and then they burnt it to the ground. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they crucified thousands of Christians. This took place over a long period of time, five months. It wasn't just one day. And can you imagine? I tried to just find a picture what it would look like if the temple was just on fire for days and days. People are being crucified and murdered all around you. It would seem, don't you think, like the end of the world. It was going to be a catastrophic event. And I think Jesus was preparing his disciples for it. I do think it was a shadow of a greater reality, but right now I want us to focus on this actual event, the temple coming down. So when we get to verses 24 to 26, Jesus is predicting this thing that's going to happen, and it's going to be so bad that I think he uses cosmic, catastrophic language to describe what's going to happen. He quotes three very specific lines of prophecy here in verses 24 to 26. Two are from Joel, and one is from Daniel. And so I want us to walk through them. This is going to be um, 
Just try to stay with me here. I, wanna, I hope that it has something to say to us. Um, but I want to start with these two passages in Daniel. These are what he's quoting in verses 24 and 25. The first one is Joel 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw. They're shining. Then in verse 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, this really does sound like the end of time, doesn't it? But if we look a little deeper into these prophecies, I think that we can see that Joel was actually pointing to the salvation that Jesus would bring for all of mankind. Joel is prophesying before Jesus, even his first coming. So let's look what some of the other passages in this chapter say. Chapter 2, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then at the very end of chapter 2, verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think he's talking about Jesus' entire mission, the entirety of his mission. Well, then Jesus quotes Daniel, and he talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory. And we get thoroughly confused. When he talks about this, let's read, let's read this particular prophecy, Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And so I, I, I read that and I say, is he still talking about the destruction of the temple, or is he talking about his second coming? And I think the answer is yes to both of those. <laughs> but again, I think it refers to Jesus' whole entire mission. It says the Son of Man will come with great power and glory. Well, to do what? Well, Daniel 7 verse 14 gives us the answer. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So God was describing here a kingdom that Jesus would establish that would reach out to the entire Gentile world, a kingdom that we're still a part of today. So in the destruction of the temple, I think God is ushering in something new in Jesus. God is doing something that these other temples had been unable to do. Instead of being a light to the nations or a house of prayer for the nations like they were intended to be, the temple had become a stronghold of idolatry for the Jews. And they had made it so burdensome for anyone else to come in that to know God, you had to follow the law. So I think that the, that the destruction of the temple was very hopeful 
Why? Why would it be hopeful for the temple to go away? Well, because it would be the sure sign that God had made Jesus and his church the better temple, the fifth temple mentioned in Scripture. Jesus' disciples, his church, the people, I liked this picture because it's people formed around the shape of the cross. It's the people who were formed by the cross and by Jesus' resurrection and empowered by his spirit who will go out into the whole world where God's chosen ones await the good news. I just, I love the vision that John received about Christ's church in Revelation 5, 9 and 10. He said this when he saw Jesus. John said, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So through Christ, God dwells in us. We are a kingdom of priests, and we provide this amazing open door for the people of all the nations to come in to God's kingdom. Isn't that good news? Isn't that something to celebrate and to rejoice about? Well, although the temple really was destroyed, it was destroyed in A.D. 70, These catastrophic events do serve as a shadow of a greater reality. You see in chapter 13, verse 27, where Christ says that he will indeed return one day to gather his elect to the four winds. But it's not going to happen until all the nations have heard the good news. So we're still waiting We're still waiting for Jesus to come back and to take us home. But I think that to predict when, where, and how that will happen is very, very dangerous. The reason I think that is because of what Jesus told us, his final message for us in verses 32 to 37. In verse 32 of chapter 13, Jesus said, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And since we don't know when it will happen, what are we to do? Well, he gives us two simple commands. He says he wants us to be on guard and to stay awake. And then he helps his disciples and us to understand what he meant by that by telling us a parable about a doorkeeper. He said, it's like a man who goes on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So how do we do our work as his servants and stay awake at the door until the master comes back? We get to do this together as the people of God, the temple of God. I think we stay in the word together. We pray fervently together. We promote peace, justice, 
and unity in Christ alone. Together, we fight against injustice and oppression as the church in Jesus' name for his glory. And just like the disciples, we expect hardship and suffering along the way. We trust the Holy Spirit to speak to us through one another and to encourage us to endure to the end. Together, we are God's temple, and we are to be a welcoming doorkeeper to his kingdom. And so my question for us to ponder today as we leave, are we a ready and open door to the kingdom to those around us? As we close, I want to think one more time about birth pains. As women, I think that we know a thing or two about birth pains, right? I will never forget, I always, why do I cry? I'll I'll never forget my first labor. 23 years ago yesterday, uh, when my daughter Hannah was born, and I chose this picture because we both look pretty beat up (laughs) in the process. When that day came, I had read all of the books. I had been to all of the classes. And yet, I had no idea what was going to happen. I was terrified. I was scared. And just like many of you, all I could do was to trust God. God had created my daughter, and he would call her forth in his timing and in his way. And he did that. Three weeks early, when it was time, I just knew. God provided the way out for Hannah, and he gave me the strength to endure the pain. And I believe he'll make a way for us too, and he'll give us everything that we need to endure firmly to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the Holy Spirit. We're so grateful that Jesus came and left the Spirit for us that would help us to learn and to, um, to make sense of the things that, he, that he's taught in this passage. And so, God, would you help us to understand it? Would you help us to understand it together? I really am excited that you have chosen to dwell in us as your temple. That none of us does that alone. We do that together. And so would you make us just that open door for all the nations to come and be a part of your kingdom. We we pray this and ask it um, all for your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen.